Welcome to Hope Renewed, the podcast of PIR Ministries. Thanks for connecting to Hope Renewed, the in-depth podcast about pastoral renewal and restoration. I'm Tom Jameson, and along with co-host Sean Nemechek, we explore the issues and challenges pastors face and help cultivate a renewed hope for healthy ministry lives. There are a number of tools or capacity a pastor needs to have at hand in this ever-changing and always challenging world of ministry in order to be healthy and to stay healthy. Things like adaptability and insight, boundaries, personal rule and rhythm. Perhaps most helpful and necessary is the quality of resiliency. Today on Hope Renewed, we are focusing in on what one author has called the virtue that enables people to move through hardship and become better, and are so pleased to have as our guest, Glenn Packiam. Yeah, Tom, Glenn's just written a new book called The Resilient Pastor, and we're so excited to have him on the show with us. Glenn Packiam is an associate senior pastor at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and the lead pastor of one of its congregations, New Life Downtown. He's the author of six books, including Worship in the World to Come and Blessed, Broken, Given, How Your Story Becomes Sacred in the Hands of Jesus. Glenn earned a doctorate in theology and ministry from Durham University. Uh, He's also one of the founding uh, worship leaders for the Desperation Band, and has written over 65 worship songs published with Integrity Music. Uh, You might know a couple of those that he he co-wrote, Your Name and uh, My Savior Lives, those sound familiar? Uh, Glenn and his wife, Holly, uh, and their four kids enjoy life in beautiful Colorado Springs, Colorado. Glenn Packiam, welcome to Hope Renewed. Thank you so much, Tom and Sean. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. So as I mentioned, your new book is called The Resilient Pastor. As you start this book, uh, you tell a little bit of your own uh, story, your journey toward becoming a resilient pastor yourself. Would you be willing to to share some of that with us? Well, sure. The, the journey actually begins with the, the discerning the call to becoming a pastor. I grew up in Malaysia. It's where I'm from. Um, and my my parents, I watched my parents discern a call toward vocational ministry as pastors. Uh, my mom was a teacher for many, many years. My dad worked in an ad agency and public relations. And, and it was probably, it was in their, you know, early forties that they discerned this call from the Lord to kind of lay down their jobs. And our family moved from Malaysia to Portland, Oregon, where my parents went to Bible college. Uh, and then after, you know, for three years, and then we returned to Malaysia. I was in high school during those years. And then I watched them, you know, plant this church in a, in a rural kind of township. And then I left to go to college and came back to the States to go to college. And I carried with me the sense of, you know, a, a call towards um, missions work is what I thought. And then in my teenage years, maybe a call towards worship ministry. And But I, I never felt worthy of the pastor uh, calling because I, I, I saw my parents and I saw the way they, they you know, bled for people. And, and uh, we always had folks in our homes and the way they loved for them. And I thought, man, I don't know if I'm that kind. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, but I loved the local church and, and believed in the local church. And out of college, there was an opportunity to come and be an intern at New Life Church here in Colorado Springs. And, and there were some other options available. And at 22, I was full of myself. 
myself and thought that I should maybe pursue bigger and better opportunities. But there was something about new life that I felt called to and felt drawn to. And I thought, this is a community. This is a people. This is a church that I want to be part of. So I said yes and came out here in the summer of 2000 and uh, really watched the Lord kind of kind of turn my heart and and solidify a call. My, I began that first six months to a year here at New Life, I basically shadowed um, the worship pastor wherever he went. So if he was, and he was a worship leader that didn't play an instrument. And so if he was asked to sing at a funeral, guess who was the piano player? You know, <laughs> I, I went with him to funerals, weddings, different meetings and all of this stuff. And it was a great way to learn. And he is today a great pastor at a church in, in Austin, Texas called One Chapel. Uh, but six years into my time at New Life, there was a very public uh, scandal. Uh, Ted Haggard was the founding pastor of New Life Church, and that scandal made headlines in Christianity Today and other publications all around the world because Ted was at the time the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. And so it was a shock to us. Uh, I was 28 years old, and it was, it was the kind of thing. It was an earthquake event, as sometimes counselors call mm -hmm. that, that thing. And, and it, it made me question, okay, so what, what are we doing here? And I realized that I had made the vocation of pastor. I had been living it out in a very platform oriented way. I, that made me was one way to say it. And as a worship pastor, and I was working with the college ministry, a lot of the emphasis for me, and I'm not blaming anyone for this. I'll own this as a young 20 something. A lot of the emphasis became about what we were doing from the platform, the songs we were singing, the sermons we were preaching, and even the kind of quote unquote influence we were having out there in the world, you know, um, leading youth conferences and, and using language like we're going to go, you know, change the world and do these big things. And some of that's good. Some of that's inspiring to call young people up to that. But I realized in my own life, I had I had lost the heart, if you will, of what it truly means to be a pastor. And so in the wake of that scandal, um, and actually 13 months later, there was a shooting that happened on the campus of our church. Uh, a gunman came in. So the new senior pastor, Brady Boyd, came in the summer of 2007. hundred days later, a gunman came on our campus, opened fire. Tragically, two teenage girls lost their lives uh, in a parking lot that day. Uh, a really, really tragic story. So you put together scandal and shooting, you know, this transition and tragedy uh, in a short period of time. And one, we just didn't know, is our church going to exist? Is, does God, yeah. you know, have a purpose for us wow. beyond the season, right? Mm -hmm. But then secondly, in my own heart, I just began, my wife and I just began to really pray and say, Lord, what does it mean? to be a pastor and are we called to be pastors and one of the best things brady did when he came in august of 2007 is as he began to care for us and lead us and help us heal he gave different ones of the staff who had been here for a certain number of years a sabbatical some extended time off and wow. you know we were a church that was very performance oriented very go 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 so even getting an extra four weeks if we maybe you combine with another two weeks and you get six weeks off in a row was unheard of we'd never missed more than two sundays and it was during that sabbatical in 2008 now, the spring of 2008, 2009, somewhere around there, my wife and I began to discern this calling toward pastoral ministry, but in a new way. And Eugene Peterson, reading Eugene Peterson was a big part of that, of, of recognizing that pastoral work is personal and, and local and 
And it, there's a there's a longer story here, but it led to me writing some letters to Eugene and asking if I could spend a few days with him and being able to go out there because I it, it, it led to a different kind of crisis. Then I began to think, well, OK, if we are called to be pastors, then surely we can't do it in this context. And, what, <laughs> and you know, yeah. and, and what Eugene what Eugene helped me realize uh, and, and some of my colleagues as well who spent time with him is that there's no perfect context in which to be a pastor. Mm. And, and that's not mm. just because we're, a, you know, a big church or whatever, but even the stuff we had been through, there's no perfect context in which to be a pastor. But if you can faithfully pay attention and call attention, Eugene's phrase, to what God is doing in a particular congregation, then you can live out that vocation. So that's yeah. a long answer to the question. Oh, that's some great stuff, though. I, I mean... It sounds like you were forced to, to grow quickly through some really hard things. Yeah. And uh, those that pain sometimes leads us to to a deeper relationship with Christ that, that makes us better pastors in the mm. long run. It, it forces that inward examination. Yeah. 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 And Tom, that's exactly right. And that's what happened, you know, in the months that followed the scandal in, in, at the end of 2006. You know, it, it, it became less about one man's failure and more about our own complicity in the system, maybe our own sort wow. of not paying attention to mm-hmm. how we've thought about church and, mm-hmm. and, and ministry. And, and, and I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There were some beautiful things happening at New Life and that, that by God's grace have continued on. But the self-examination that you're referring to, you know, uh, I, I remember reading a Henry Nouwen book, uh, In the Name of Jesus, where mm-hmm. Nouwen talks about burnout as another word sometimes for spiritual death and that when we're failing to give and receive love, we end up just building empires. And, and, and I thought, gosh, is that me? Uh, 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 and, and yes, it is yeah. me. And, 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 oh. and how do I mm. repent of that? And how do I learn? Um, so yeah, that inward turn was huge. So what led you to write this book, The Resilient Pastor, at this time, was it? Yeah. Did it come up because of the pandemic, or did this happen before that? <laughs> no, and I would have never, you know. Listen, I, I want to be honest here. I, I would never be presumptuous enough to think I should uh, write a book to 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 you know help encourage other pastors. I love pastors. I, I love pastoral ministry. I, I you know we've been through the fire ourselves here at New Life, as I've shared. But but what happened was David Kinneman, who's the president of the you know Barna Group. Um, approached me in early 2020. So February of 2020, he said, Hey, I'm, I'm coming through town. I'd love to grab coffee. I've got something I want to run by you. And so we're chatting, catching up on life. And, and, and he said, Hey, I really think you should be the one to partner with us about a book for pastors. And he's like, we'll do kind of the research side of things. And then you can help, you know, give some, some kind of insights. And, and I, it immediately caught my attention because in 2018, I finished my doctoral work, graduated from Durham University. And, and, and the way I was trained at Durham was to kind of blend, you know, situational analysis with theological reflection mm-hmm. and then maybe some practical, um, uh, you know, steps after, after that, out of that. And so I, I loved, I, I love that idea of saying, how do we get an accurate snapshot of our world, of our culture, of our context? And then how do we bring in, you, you know, um, church, the wisdom of church history mm-hmm. or, or theology, mm-hmm. the, the truth of scripture. So I was excited at the idea, a little bit daunted um, by it. 
but, but foolishly, you know, whatever I said, yes. And began to have ideas. And I was like, David, I think these are some of the challenges we could outline and shape the research with it. Well, little did I know that, you know, a mere few weeks after saying yes, a pandemic would break out, <laughs> introducing a whole slew of challenges, or at least putting a new wrinkle on it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just noticed as I've been reading through the book, I'm not done yet, but I, I'm going through it. Books like this could could very easily just fall into giving a whole bunch of facts and become really yeah. dry and boring. You include a lot of personal story and personal experience uh, in telling this and, and kind of craft it uh, from from that perspective. Mm -hmm. um, what was it like to be writing that during a pandemic as you're sharing your own stories? Yeah. Well, it, th thank you for saying that, Sean. I, uh, the goal was to not make the data the star of the book, but a supporting cast, you know, so so the data kind of sets the tone, if you will, or, or introduces, uh, you know, the complexity. But it's about a fifth of each chapter. It's not, you know, it's maybe 10, 15, 20 percent of each chapter. And, and yes, I am trying to glean from church history, share some personal vulnerability, because we were walking through it like everyone else in the country. Mm. We're dealing with all the same uh, dimensions of, of tribalism and political tensions and and, uh, and and people, you know, having opinions about how different things should be handled. And in some ways, you know, I say early in the book, in some ways, the pandemic was um, an instigator of new changes. You know, when we get to the chapter that talks about the challenge of gathering together in worship, mm -hmm. the pandemic did kind of instigate these challenges of people saying, well, if I can do online church, why do I need to come? Mm. In other ways, the pandemic was maybe an accelerator of trends already in motion. Um, things like the loss of credibility among pastors and, and things like that. But in other ways, I think the pandemic was simply the revealer, you know, where mm -hmm. it, it, it allowed us to stop papering over things and pretending that everything's all right, and that this is the same world that that you know our grandparents pastored in it's it's not the same world and so yeah. so I, I think writing it with that kind of clarity of vision uh, because of the pandemic was helpful and then secondly on a personal note i went through during the fall of 2020 i went through a personal health crisis where my, my vocal cords uh, developed a severe issue that required surgery and i was out of the pulpit for 12 weeks i had to be silent i think all in all i was silent completely silent for about 4 weeks wow um 2 weeks post surgery you know so it was it was definitely another one of those inward turns of soul searching of the lord reminding me of my identity <laughs> as identity as a child of god not in what i do and it gave me space to write. It gave me space to read and write and hunker down in the basement and say, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do right now. Mm. And to be able to embrace those difficulties as gifts yeah, uh, where God is at work, which really, I, I want to dig into your work and, and ask you to kind of give the, the, the overarching uh, picture of this. Um, so what, what do you mean by resiliency when you talk mm. about the resilient pastor? Well, I... I, it's certainly not a book about, you know, just sort of the, the, the quality of resilience itself. There's some incredible work that's done, uh, been done on that, psychologists and uh, business books. But when I think of it in pastoral ministry, I think of it as faithfulness. I think mm. in, in, in a word, it is what Paul talks about in, at 1 Corinthians 15, the end of it, where he says, you know, don't be steadfast, be immovable, uh, know that your labor in the Lord will not be in vain. That That's what I think of. So it's a resilience that comes from 
the spirit at work in us and in our churches mm. and from the hope of resurrection. Cause first Corinthians 15 is all about Jesus's resurrection. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he's like, so in light of that glorious sort of ending and hope of resurrection in light of that, uh, let, don't, you know, don't, don't grow weary, you know, be, be steadfast and immovable. So it's a resilience that is rooted in the hope of resurrection and powered by the Holy spirit. And it looks like faithfulness in the everyday. Mm. How about that? <laughs> Neat definition. I love it. <laughs> So let's dig down into the book just a little bit. Um, you, you wrote this book in three parts. So you offer four challenges for pastors, mm -hmm. four challenges for the church, and then a section called Hope for Tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the, the challenges for pastors. Um, you list them as vocation, mm -hmm. spirituality, mm -hmm. relationships, and credibility. Mm -hmm. Can you just briefly unpack what, what these are and why they're challenges? Yeah, so the challenge of vocation is essentially the question, what are pastors actually called to do? And the, the, the maybe the, I'll give one significant stat for each of these challenges. And the one for vocation is that 35% 30, of pastors responded, this is a new study that we did in the fall of 2020, uh, feel more, saying that they feel more confident in their calling than when they first entered ministry. Now, that's 35%. That's not the majority, of course. Uh, and it's important to note that in 2015, when Barna asked this question, 65% said they were more hmm. confident than when they first began. That means fewer pastors are feeling more confident than when they first began, um, than even that responded, you know, five years prior to it. So this confidence in our vocation is being shaken. And part of that, I think, and I did, I, so, so I helped, I worked with the Barna team to design kind of these research questions and they implemented it and they do such an incredible job with that. But then I also did focus groups with um, pastors from the US, Canada, and the UK. I did these 90 minute, uh, three different 90 minute focus groups with, with about uh, 25 pastors and just testing some of this out. Like, what's this like in your world? Tell me about your cities and very different cities from one another, some in the South, some in, you know, the Northwest and whatever. And, and many of them just in their own storytelling confirmed this experience that in their vocation, they're just being asked to do too many things. They're supposed to be experts at bank loans for building projects. Mm. And uh, they're supposed to be expert counselors. And then they're supposed to be expert theologians. And then they're supposed to be parsing the cultural trends perfectly. So, so there's this little bit of crisis of vocation. And I think what, what we need to do as pastors is return to that moment where Christ called us. And I think very often about that Jesus and Peter moment, you know, where Jesus says, do you love me? Uh, and, you know, feed my sheep. And so we're, we're, we're going to acknowledge, we got to acknowledge that we can't do all of these things equally well but that the reason we're in this life is because Jesus asked us if we love him, you know, mm -hmm. not, do you love the work? Not mm -hmm. even do you love the church? <laughs> not even do you love your city? I mean, really, I mean, I th and I think yeah. those things are important, Yeah. but ground zero is, do you love me? You know? And uh, so that's, that then leads into the challenge of spirituality. And the key stat there is just over half of the pastors that we interviewed uh, said that they have a daily habit of, of personal Bible reading. And of course, we went into more other devotional practices and all of that. But the truth is, spirituality is a struggle for many pastors because mm -hmm. we, it's our job to tend to everybody else's uh, spirituality. And we find ourselves going through the motions. It's it, it reminded me of a study that was done decades ago by a sociologist named Arlie Hochschild, where she studied 
uh, flight attendants and how they have to have this forced pleasantness mm-hmm. and it, it makes other social interactions difficult because you've just that muscle, if you will, is fatigued. Mm. And I think for pastors, we are on stage praying or leading worship or preaching and, and that muscle of devotion to God gets fatigued and we go home and we're like, yeah, I don't want to do that anymore. You know? Mm. And so that's a challenge. Um, so that's one of the, and then the third one is relationships. Three out of five pastors reported feeling lonely in in the last year. Um, Loneliness has always been a a struggle because pastors are in asymmetrical relationships. There's there's power differentials. Our relationships are often non-mutuality. There's non-mutuality in those relationships. It's not give and take. It's usually just people trying to take. Yeah. Uh, And pastors feel guilty for trying to hang out with friends. You know, we often tell ourselves we don't deserve that. We should let our calendar be overrun by whoever asks for time. So in this chapter, I try to propose that, hey, you need a constellation of different kinds of relationships in your life from mentors to friends to, you know, and, and you, it's okay to intentionally schedule those before your, your calendar gets overrun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the last sort of challenge for pastors is the one on credibility where there's just a declining sense of uh, the pastor being viewed as a trustworthy voice. I mean, 31% of Christians, only 31% of Christians think a pastor is definitively or definitely a trustworthy source of Christians. Mm. It's 4% of non-Christians. You mm. know? So even in society, yeah. it's like, are you going to ask a pastor about that? No, you're not. Um, so anyway, there's a lot more to be said about that, but that's the lay of the land. Wow. It's, it's just so much in this book that that is speaking into just kind of the basic soul care that pastors need to do in order to be able to minister well. Yeah. Yeah. But just that how important it is to remember to minister out of the fullness of Christ rather than out of the fullness of ourselves. Yeah. Uh, You know, the, the fatigue that, that comes, uh, I mean, it's still going to be there. It's still tiring. Don't grow weary. That's an over weariness, but uh, to to be allowing the outflow of our ministry to be the outflow of the Spirit from us. Yeah, yeah, that that's exactly right. And 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 believing that if we don't prioritize kind of our own time with the Lord, there's there's nothing there to offer, and it's mm-hmm. it might feel heroic or sacrificial to say, I'll schedule that 6 a.m. breakfast and then that 8 a.m. staff meeting. And then that, you know, but that's not heroic. And it's, it would be better if we said 6 a.m. workout, 7 a.m. prayer, you know, 2 p.m. Mm-hmm. staff meeting or whatever it is, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and it, you know, it, it, it would help us last in the long run much better. Yeah. The other thing I was reading an article by Mike Leake uh, about the new challenges, but not the new challenges that COVID has exposed. And, and you talk about credibility and how difficult it is to be in the pastoral position. And that used to give you automatically a, a credible voice in the yeah. culture. And now it's almost the, the opposite. Uh, I don't know if in, in any of your research, if you saw that the, the plethora of voices that are available are, are warring against that and in fact creating that um, loss of credibility. Well, that that is for sure one of the reasons that, that or one of the things that has contributed to the loss of credibility is just 
Yeah, well, I, I listened to this, you know, podcast and I, I, you know, read this article and I saw this viral video and, you know, whatever. And, and look, we, we, we see it in, in other spheres. I don't want to just say, woe is me for the pastor. I, I'm mm-hmm. sure during the pandemic, you know, healthcare professionals have mm-hmm. felt that same thing. And, and it's a, <laughs> the it's internet a real, said, <laughs> the internet said, or Facebook, my friend shared this Facebook thing. And, you know, so the, the death of the expert in general is a real thing in this sort mm. of a, a, age of the mm. internet 3.0 or two or whatever, you know. Um, but I think for the pastoral vocation, it's not just the death of expertise. It's this loss of trust that I think is really concerning. And I think, I think part of it, again, we have to be honest and own what we need to own here. I, I mentioned the part of our own story that has to do with a scandal. A part of that loss of trust is because of the abuse of power or the misuse of power, yeah. where, where pastors have overextended their influence and tried to tell people things and you don't need to do that. And, you don't, you know, and, and, and other times it's, it's been the outright misuse of power in, in cases of abuse and, 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 and moral failures. But there's subtle versions and there's bigger versions, but there's a, there's a public trust that has been squandered mm-hmm. uh, that we're now, man, we're facing the consequences of that, even though it, it may not have been us, yeah. but by default, we're paying the price for everyone else. We're connected. Yeah. And, and so in a sense, resiliency is, is finding out that, that way to capture again, the uniqueness of the voice of Jesus yes. to a culture. Yes. And how can he be heard? Yeah, that's exactly it, Tom. And, and, and even specifically, just to come back around on that thing about power, thinking of Jesus in John 13, knowing that all authority had been given to him, he took off his robe and began to wash their feet. Yeah. You know, what happens when the church does have influence? Did we use it to bully? Did we use it to push an agenda? Um, or did we use it to wash feet? And, yeah. you know, New Life, we, we learned that the hard way. In their late 90s, there was a lot of cultural capital, cultural power. And we certainly used that to, to wage cultural wars and to bully and that sort of thing. And when we went through our own season of pain, it helped us recognize, you know, we're in this city not to grab a megaphone, but to grab a towel and to find mm. the places of pain and to be able to wash feet and all of that. And, and so... Look, we, we got to live the way of Jesus, even if it doesn't result in the rise of credibility, we, we need to do it. But I think it will help. I think it will lead. to Yeah. That. Well, and it's recapturing, I'll tip my hand here, recapturing the authentic voice of Jesus to the yes. world. Yes. Uh, but you, you mentioned uh, about the, I don't want to say culpability, but the responsibility that, that lies beyond the pastor in the local church. And so in your work, you're talking about the challenges for the church um, that affect the pastor's resilience, worship, formation, unity, mission. Um, Open those up a little bit more for us. Yeah. Yeah, So we covered the four challenges facing pastors and then the four challenges facing the church. This has to do with sort of the thing that we're leading as pastors and the people that we're, we're partnering in ministry with. And so challenge number one here, and this is not in order of priority, just in order of the way that I deal with them in the book, is, is worship. And specifically, what I mean by that is the gathered church. What, mm-hmm. Why does the church gather? And does it even matter? I mean, 71% of pastors strongly agreed. Yeah, the physical gathering is essential to the church. That's great. But how many of our people still believe that? And it's yeah. particularly as we're you know, kind of in and out, ebb and flowing here with the pandemic, online, not online, hybrid options. And, and, you know, most churches even right now are what 50% of what they were because, yeah. you, you know, um, and even the ones that are doing well, maybe are 70%. And we're all kind of wondering, did we actually lose people or 
And people uh, adopted different habits, bad habits, you mm -hmm. know? And so there's a challenge here of ecclesiology, of teaching our people, what is it about the gathered church that really is different? It's different than um, a group of friends going on a hike uh, in Colorado, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and that, that teaching has to, has to be done. And then the challenge of formation, how does the church actually make disciples? Uh, for many of us as pastors, and, I, and we're in the same boat too, we end up tracking things like attendance to services and attendance to our discipleship pathways kinds of things, which is, which is great. It's about the only thing we can track, um, you know, but, but we all know that formation has been a, has been a puzzle and we've seen mm -hmm. poor formation um, contribute to some of the divisions in the church in the mm -hmm. last uh, year and a half, where is our formation stronger than the formation they're getting from cable news or the, yeah. than the formation they're getting on Facebook or, yeah. you know, uh, and then that goes for us as pastors, too, which then leads to the third challenge, the, the challenge of preserving the unity in the church. Um, and I, I zoom in on two particular threats to unity in the American church right now or the Western church, um, the different understandings of the race problems. You know, some mm -hmm. want to deal with it only personally, some only want to deal with it structurally. And, and how do we get to listen to each other and um, and then, and then the challenge, the other threat to unity, you know, maybe is this, um, sort of hyper version of, of a religious nationalism, uh, thing mm -hmm. where, where God and country get, get mixed in. And then, so people leave churches, not over doctrine, but over politics and yeah. boy, man, wow. How do pastors deal with that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, so that's challenge number three. And then the, the fourth one in there is the, the challenge of mission. What is the church actually called to do in the world? Is it only evangelism? Is it only justice or, or is it only care? Um, how does the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom actually hold together mm -hmm. pro proclamation, demonstration, all, all of that stuff. So, and you mentioned paradigm before, it, it just seems like the, the, the paradigms being blown up and, and how as a pastor um, I'm not pastoring a church right now, but I'm wondering as a pastor, how, how do I grapple with this? What do I tack first? What do I, you know, uh, how do I begin to do this? I mean, what, what were your insights uh, into that? <laughs> I, just well, that. Tom, I mean, th there are no easy answers. I yeah. mean, complex problems do not get solved by simple answers. And, some of what I'm trying to do in these chapters in particular is to just help us recognize the complexity of it mm -hmm. um, and then find some theological frameworks that then will lead us to, to answer. So on the, on the worship chapter, you know, I end up talking about the purpose of the gathering in terms of um, do we gather to encounter the Lord? Do we gather to be, to be, you, you know, formed or do we gather mm -hmm. you know, to reach the lost? Well, what, what's the gathering about? And and even kind of developing a theology of of of, of um, temple theology that's there in Ephesians of why the gathering is different. Mm. Um, I will say in chapters like the unity chapter, Tom, it was harder to kind of, you know, it was it was harder to to, to be solutions oriented, except to say I do think if we understand that we need to start with humility, a posture of humility. This is Philippians mm -hmm. two kind of stuff. Start with that the same mind being you that was in Christ Jesus. And then recognize that diversity is not the goal. The goal is not just to get a whole bunch of different people together in our church, but genuine hospitality where we're able mm -hmm. to welcome people who are different than us. And then move towards from hospitality, move towards solidarity, where mm -hmm. I can stand with you in your pain, even though it's not my pain. Man, that that 
is a movement toward and then beyond solidarity towards a, a kind of mutuality. And those those insights come from Sandra Van Opstel. Um, she wrote a book a few years ago about multicultural worship that actually had mm-hmm. some insights that I thought work really well uh, with regard to church unity. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, the, what I'm trying to do in these chapters is help us name the complexity and then get us started with some some theological frameworks. And then, but then saying, pastors, we have to discern the the actual steps in our context. Yeah, it sounds like that same inward examine mm. um, that that mm. uh, individually we need to do um, in, in pastoral ministry. We need to do that. The church needs to do for such a time as this. The Lord has has opened that up to us again. The uh, I can't get past this whole idea, you know. Uh, COVID was this horrible thing. And yet look at yeah. all the opportunities. It's There's an opportunity. Us. Yeah. 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 You're exactly right. There's an opportunity. And I, and I hope that, that in many ways, the, the, the book is designed to be a conversation starter, a provoker of conversation to say, here's some fodder for your thinking, for your praying, uh, for your discerning together, because it's, I, no, I'm not, I'm not proposing. Okay. If you just do these three things, boom, you solve, you, you, you'll automatically right. be resilient in these challenges. <laughs> I wish it were that easy. So Glenn, you did this, this book in cooperation with Barna. Uh, what was the most surprising um, data or, or part of your research for the book? You know, it, 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 nothing was, uh, really surprising, but I think the thing that just made me kind of stop um, was the the credibility stat, the 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 loss of credibility among mm-hmm. pastors in the community. Um, well, actually, even among Christians, to say that only thirty one percent view mm-hmm. a pastor as this sort of def- I would definitely agree. You know, a pastor is a trustworthy source of wisdom. That's pretty low, um, and and then to, to know that number is four percent in the community. I think those were the pieces that really made me pause to say, this is a different age. We're not starting from zero. We're starting from the negative. Uh, Even in, I mean, and I, you know, Colorado Springs, we've got a lot of ministries, we've got a lot of churches. It's, it's somewhere in between on all the lists of post-Christian, whatever, you know, we're not the, we're not Seattle or San Francisco, but we're also not Birmingham, you know, or Atlanta. Mm -hmm. We're we're Mm -hmm. kind of in between and, and anecdotally or experientially my own, our own ministry here, I think, yeah, that's, it's kind of true, you know, like it's even in our own church, um, we, 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 people would say, yeah, I like you, but if you don't agree with my talking points that I already think, you know, then I don't trust you. So you're being graded by someone else's metric um, as opposed mm. to people saying, Hey, help me think about, you know, X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. So it's not just that, that pastors have suddenly become uh, untrustworthy or something like that, but it, it may be a reflection on the, uh, the society at large. Yeah, I think so. I, I think just our place and, and Tom and I talked about the crowding out, you know, just the multiple other voices, you know, so you become one mm-hmm. of many, then you become the uh, lower down the totem pole, even of those other voices. And, and, so, but at the end of the day, I think what we're seeing is the, the sense of, the self being the arbiter of truth. So the individual really in all matters, Mm. the individual has the autonomy to decide what is true. So it's the, you know, some people call it the autonomous self. Uh, Charles Taylor called it expressive individualism, but it's this idea that people are going to find out who they are and what they think, and they're going to express that. And if you agree with them, then you can 
be their pastor. And if you disagree with them, then you can't, you know, mm. so they've taken a little bit from this podcast and a little bit from that TV show and a little bit from this one thing they read. And then they come to their opinions about hell or Jesus or other religions or whatever the subject may be. And again, if you preach in a way that confirms what they, the individual have decided is true, then good for you. And if you don't, then uh, I don't know about my pastor, you know. And that puts pastors in such a difficult position, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, to be able to to continue to speak the truth, even especially the truth that people are going to disagree with, yeah. knowing that they, they may just reject you in the process. A- exactly right. That's exactly, I think about, the, you know, when God said to Samuel, uh, don't worry, you know, they are not rejecting uh, you, they're rejecting me, yeah. you know, and I think pastors are mm-hmm. in that same boat, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're joining the line of, you know, goes all the way back to Samuel, that when people mm-hmm. reject this, they're not just walking away from our church, they're, they're, they're saying something about God, they don't want, and I, I, I'm saying they, this is terrible, uh, that's obviously a mass generalization, the culture is more resistant to this than they have been in the past. Let's put it that way. Obviously, yeah. lots of people mm-hmm. are open to it and humble and, and, and beautiful, and they're in our churches, thank God. But there is a rising tide of people whose resistance to the kingship of Jesus mm-hmm. looks like their rejection of the church. So, Glenn, let's just shift gears just a little bit. As you were writing the book, what was the biggest lesson for your own life? Yeah, I there were... Um, a couple things, you know, that sort of uh, came to the surface, even for my own ministry. The one that I mentioned earlier about Jesus and Peter, do you love me? That's a story for me personally that I, I revisit and, and have revisited for years now since everything we went through as a church. And, uh, and I think about that when I think about the statistic about pastors who have thought about quitting the ministry uh, and, and when I feel my own discouragement uh, in this, I think two things hit me because of writing it during the pandemic is one to nurture that intimacy with Jesus so that every day I wake up recognizing, okay, Jesus, I love you. You love me and you're sending me into this work. So that's the, that's the foundation. And then mm-hmm. secondly, that I've been so grateful for colleagues here at new life that are friends that I've known for 20, 25 years, you know, mm-hmm. and I recognize that I'm kind of lucky in, in that respect. Many pastors don't have the gift of that. Um, and so when we'd sit in a room to try to decide, gosh, what do we do about regathering again? And what do we do about this decision or that decision that it kind of felt like, well, I, we can argue it in a couple of different ways, but at the end of the day, when we make a decision, it's good to know we're not alone in this decision that we've made it together that there's a sense of solidarity together. So for me personally, writing that chapter about relationships made me recognize what a lifeline my own relationships and friendships have Mm -hmm. been in in, in my life. And what a prayer that is for me, for other pastors um, to, Mm -hmm. you know, the pandemic really, it it helped us recognize, gosh, we're alone. And, and we Mm -hmm. can't fool ourselves into thinking that the people that we, you know, we slap their backs and hug their necks on a Sunday and all that. You can't fool yourself into thinking that those are the real um, intimate friends. Some are, some aren't. And, and, and we have to, we have to do the work of cultivating genuine friendships. And for me personally, uh, it reminded me of that because that was a lesson I learned the hard way, you know, um, mm. um, you know, so it took several years of being in ministry before recognizing I don't do anything intentional to be with friends, you know, but, but having sown those seeds, 
five, six, seven years ago, uh, I, I recognized the fruit of that during a season like this. And seeing that these problems aren't new. Uh, COVID didn't create these problems. It may have, uh, you know, revealed them yeah. from the gas on the fire. But this, mm-hmm. this is uh, something that's been kind of systemic in pastoral ministry for, well, as long as there have been pastors. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and those are those just basic needs. So, as you think of of, of a, you know the way forward for pastors uh, in the church, uh, in uh, given the research that's been done, um, and I'd like to frame the the question this way: um, you you did part of your doctoral work in in the area of Christian hope. Yeah, what do you see the connection between uh, being between resiliency and hope? I love that question, Tom. Um, you know, sometimes, and and it has been a saying that I guess has, has been made popular over the last few decades, you know, we hear people say, the local church is the hope of the world. And I think I understand the intent of that sentence, but I fundamentally disagree with it. And, and I think when we talk like the local church is the hope of the world, that just makes pastors want to burn out. Because mm. then, it, then we say, well, mm. goodness, I got to keep this thing going, you know, like, this is the only lifeboat for, for a sinking, uh, drowning world. I better just, you know, crank and keep rowing harder. And, and um, Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Amen. And, and Jesus, <laughs> the, the risen Christ, the resurrection is this essence of Christian hope. That means even if death happens, even if the worst happens, even if the church folds, even if you move on from this pastorate, it, it, it means resurrection is still possible. Resurrection is still coming. Um, so, so resurrection doesn't emerge from possibilities that are latent within a corpse. Resurrection, resurrection happens when the worst has already occurred, when all potential has ceased. Mm. So, to me, it's not about, oh, gosh, is there potential for the church to turn this around? Or do you, do you see any hope in our culture? My hope is rooted in the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And, and so our story, we, our story will not end with, with death and, and devastation. And, and, and it's, so it's, it's just not tied to progress. So it's interesting, you know, with a book like this, where there's so many statistics that, that we open with, I end with the resurrection as a way of saying, Christian hope is not progress. Christian hope is not an escape. Um, it's not God's going to get us out of here. Christian hope is God's going to bring life out of death and it's, it's resurrection. And so, so because of that, it means a few things. It means um, we can be free to collaborate with others. There's a chapter. So in this third section of the book, Hope for Tomorrow, there's a chapter on collaboration. And there's three layers of this. I think there's this kind of a meta layer of, of collaboration that I, I call symbiotic influence. And that looks like Christian traditions bleeding on each other, helping each other. I'm at a non-denominational charismatic mega church, but I am ordained as an Anglican priest. And, and you know, and we have got, and I was, you know, we've, we have people that were discipled by reform, you know, whatever. I, I think we need to learn from the other traditions because if the church is going to, mm. Uh, continue to be a light in the dark world. We we can't just hold our individual candles. We got to put our candles together here uh, to light the flame. And so there's a symbiotic influence. And then there's there's these missional partnerships, and and that can look uh, uniquely in each city because each church can't do. We pastors can't be experts. We can't figure out how to solve poverty or homelessness or whatever. But there are agencies who know how to do that. And there are people who know how to do that. And so creatively 
tackling that. I was at a dinner earlier this week with 100 pastors from our city, along with leaders in education, school districts, and, and other areas, trying to tackle the question of how do we help uh, uh, education gaps in our county. That's not a problem a, a local church or even many local churches alone can, can solve, but with missional partnerships, we can, we can get there. Uh, and then, and then, and then thirdly, we got to think differently about this model of leadership where everything's the pyramid here and the senior pastor has to be the man of God or woman of God that goes up to the mountain, hears from God, comes down and says, I've got the answer. You know, I think it's got to look a lot more like Acts 15, Jerusalem, the Jerusalem council, where you're, you're debating and you're, you're hearing different views. And then there's a trusted decision maker, James, who makes the call and there's a, it seems right to the Holy Spirit and to us, there's a, it's my judgment. It's that sort of stuff. But where leadership is less concentrated in one person and it's diffused among teams, that's, that's, the, that's the kind of practical stuff that I see for churches is, okay, resurrection, that's our meta, that's our big picture. You know, and then creatively, how does the body of Christ help each other out because of our different strengths? How do we have missional partnerships in our community? And how do we have healthy teams that are leading our local congregations? I love that vision uh, just because it's infused with that hope. And, uh, and thank you too for making the distinction uh, between the church being the hope of the world and holding the hope of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a very important distinction. But that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you. I think that that focus on the resurrection is just so important, especially today. There is no hope without it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's an ill-defined hope if we uh, aren't focused on Christ. So speaking of hope, just one of the things we, we love to have our guests do is to speak kind of personally to those who are listening today, what, what words of hope would you offer to pastors? I think I first want to just say thank you. Uh, thank you for saying yes to Jesus. Thank you for serving the church. And I, I know you're tired. I know that you're weary. And uh, so I, I want to say that it's sort of like what the Lord said to Elijah. In your context, it might feel like you're the only one, but there are others. Uh, there are others, and a podcast like this is helpful to remind you that there are others. There are others who are listening. There are others who are on the show to say, "Man, even in our even in our hardship, even in our weariness, you're not alone." And the the second thing I want to say is is really three things, <laughs> and that is keep telling the story. Um, keep telling the story of God. The world thinks they've found alternate meaning-making stories. The world thinks they have found other ways. I talked about the autonomous self. You know, the world thinks that, that they've got, they don't need this, uh, that they don't need you. Um, but you're telling a forgotten story, but it is the most beautiful story. And it's the story the world needs, the story of a good beginning, the story of a glorious ending, the story of a suffering God who suffers with us in the in-between. Um, keep telling that story. Don't, don't, ever give up on that. Don't, don't ever think, well, maybe we're doing it wrong and I need to just give sort of life advice kind of, kind of talks. Uh, look, be practical. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But don't give up on telling the whole story of God, um, preach the word. And, and then the second part of that is, is to uh, continue to welcome the presence of God in your churches. Uh, I, I believe with all my heart, I know God's presence is everywhere. And I used to run into this stuff, even as a worship leader, people say, why can't I worship God everywhere? Well, you, you certainly can. 
but the Bible makes it a point. Ephesians two and Ephesians three, and then Ephesians five, and we could we could open up the you know and do those that Bible study right now if we wanted to. But 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 it makes it clear that there's something that happens when the people of God gather together, and God is particularly present with us. Um, so when you call people together, don't don't forget that that the presence of God is what makes all the difference. In the Old Testament. Israel said mm -hmm. we've become like the people that you never ruled over because the ark was gone, you know, um, for the church. The, the, the thing that marks us as the people of God is his presence among us. And so then the, the, the third piece related to that is, is um, my prayer for you is to, to expect and that you will experience uh, the power of God. In my research on hope, one of the curious things about Christians is, you know, hope from a human perspective is a sense of agency that we can do this. We've got, we've got power and a sense of a pathway that we, we, you know, there's, there's no obstacle in our way. And as Christians, you know, you look at the prayers in the book of acts and even the song that became big during the pandemic from a worship leader in Nigeria, uh, Waymaker, you're our way maker. There's something about the expectation of God's power to strengthen us. And I'm not talking about weird, spooky, you know, stuff. I, I'm just saying the sense that, <laughs> that, that God still heals marriages, that God still mm. restores broken lives, that God yeah. still like, 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 let's keep believing in that. They're not coming to our churches for the coffee or the donuts or the, or the, the tips they're coming because we've got the story. We've got the presence. We've got the power. So Mm. pastors you're that's the reason our labor will not be in vain we'll look up one day uh, you know in the resurrection and we'll say gosh well we didn't maybe we didn't see the fruit of it but the reason it wasn't in vain is because jesus is risen from the dead and that story is still the only story that will change the world that presence and that power is still the only presence and power that will make all the difference in the world amen wow that's so good glenn where can uh people find the book when does it release where will it be available well they can pre-order it now wherever they like to pre-order books whether that's amazon or barnes and noble or target.com mm -hmm. i saw it there the other day so uh, pre-order it anywhere it releases february 15th of 2022. Great. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for uh, coming on Hope Renewed. Uh, it's just been a delight to hear your optimism fueled by the resurrection <laughs> and hope in Christ. It's, it's just, it's been fun having you on. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you so much, Sean and Tom. What a pleasure. And as always, we invite you, our listeners, to rate and review Hope Renewed on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and to share this podcast with your friends on social media. It's a great way to help us continue to bring hope to others. Thanks for joining us today. It is our prayer that as you fix your eyes on Jesus, your hope is continually renewed. PIR Ministries partners with God and the church in the work of pastoral renewal and restoration to cultivate new hope for healthy ministry lives. You can learn more about us at our webpage, PIRministries.org or email us at info at PIRministries.org. Thanks for joining us for Hope Renewed. And remember, the hope Christ offers will never put us to shame. Music